Hello. Thank you for downloading this sermon by Pastor Casey Helenchek. Casey is a missionary pastor with Village Missions. Currently, Casey and his wife Hope and their six children serve the Bangor Community Church and the surrounding area of Bangor, California. Village Missions exists to glorify Jesus Christ by developing spiritually vital community churches in rural North America. We now invite you to open your Bibles and journey with us. There we go. Uh, all right, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles and learn to turn to Luke chapter 9. Uh, we're actually starting to get close to the end of chapter 9. Uh, we've been in here for, uh, I think it's close to two months now. But uh, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 9. As always, if you do not have a Bible or if you do not own one, uh, please see me after the service and we can get one into your hands. So we've been looking over the last couple of weeks at some of Jesus's teachings. Uh, and, and while they've greatly varied on their details, on their subjects, on the, the method of how he teaches, uh, the, the themes underneath them has remained uh, remarkably consistent. We've looked at and seen him uh, address pride and disunity uh, and the, the link between them. Uh, we've seen that Jesus uh, is, is the source of everything from our salvation uh, our unity, our humility, and our righteousness. Uh, and so Jesus uh, has been on that theme, and he's going to double down on that in the passages we look at this week. Uh, we warned, especially last week, of the sin of prideful exclusion. The idea that because I'm saved, because I'm a Christian, uh, even because God saved me, that I'm better than those around me who aren't. And, and the issue that that takes place and the disunity that that causes. And we're going to see uh, two more examples of that this morning. Uh, of Jesus addressing the disciples doing exactly this. There are going to be two very different examples of the groups of people that the disciples are trying to exclude. They fell into the trap, though, that only my way of following Jesus is the right and acceptable way. Only my way of doing baptism, only my way of doing communion, only my way of doing uh, the style of music, only my way of doing all these things is the right and biblical way. That's the trap that the disciples fell into. (coughs) Excuse me. It's a trap that we often fall into. Uh, And Jesus shows us that this could not be further from the truth. Uh, So we'll go ahead and read this morning's passage. Luke chapter 9, verses 49 through 56. Uh, As usual, I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. Though again, I emphasize it doesn't matter if you have the ESV, New American Standard, King James, New King James, NIV, New Living, whatever. All of them are the Word of God. And all of them, uh, whatever you have that you enjoy reading from or you understand better, read from that one. So Luke 9, 49 through 56 The Holy Spirit inspires Luke to record the following. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. 
And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. May God bless the reading of his word. So, the first incident that we see here, uh, the first few verses, uh, we see John answer. We see that's in direct response to what we looked at last week. Uh, the, the last few verses from last week. Jesus, what we looked at then, Jesus had heard the disciples arguing about which among them was the greatest. They were competing because they were traveling with and therefore were associated with Jesus. And in those days, much like our days today, if you are associated with someone great, someone with great power and great influence, if you attach yourselves to them, then you too will often be considered great and will have some power and some influence. So that's what the disciples were, were dealing with in that instance. And Jesus made it clear that there's no greatest in his kingdom. Uh, all who are the least of them in this life, who are the least of them in this world, will be great in his kingdom. Which means all who receive and call on the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God, all of those who call on him will be great. Jesus lets them know this, and, and John steps in and speaks to Jesus. And, and he, he brings up this, this situation that they had encountered recently. Uh, many different commentators attribute different tones to John's question here. Some attribute it to, to pure confusion. Well, you're saying this, but what about this situation here? Some uh, attribute it anger. Well, we had to deal with these people, so that right there is a situation. Some dismissiveness. Well, yeah, but you're not talking about those people. And, and some arrogance. But the, the point hadn't gone through. Well, yes, Jesus, but we're your actual followers, not those other people. Now, we don't know exactly the tone that John was using during this, during this situation, but you can kind of see any of those fitting the context. We do know that John, during, during the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, that we see in, in both of these stories today especially, he was just as impulsive and just as wild with his tongue as Peter was. We don't usually talk about that quite as much because uh, Peter gets more, uh, more written about his, his uh, impulsiveness. But John was a, 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 a hothead. He, was, he had his flashes as well. And he says, Master, someone else, not from our group, not from our church, we're doing things in your name. And we tried to stop them because they are not part of our group. They're not part of our circle right here, so they must have been doing something wrong. So we had to stop them. Now, here's the thing. If we take Scripture at surface reading, we can oftentimes miss the balance that, uh, that occurs. We can miss the context. We can miss, okay, he's saying this here, and that can seem contradictory to what he says over here. But the truth is, if you actually look at what he's saying, if you take a deeper reading of it, it doesn't contradict at all. There are boundaries and borders in the Christian life and belief that, that we have to defend. Not everyone who says the word God is speaking of the biblical God. Not everyone who says the name Jesus knows the true and biblical Jesus. Jesus is the only way to salvation. So we have to make sure that we understand biblically 
what we fight for, what we defend against, and what we accept, and what we agree to disagree. One pastor I I listened to used this analogy that I'm going to paraphrase and probably misquote enough that he won't even recognize it. He said, your local church is like your city. Your city is a group of somewhat or mostly like-minded people gathering together uh, within uh, the the overhead and the boundaries within a state. Uh, Rural community churches, the amount of like-mindedness sometimes differs. You know, we have different uh, backgrounds, different views. We come together as a community church uh, as opposed to uh, what we'll look at with the states. Uh, But that's still the thing. We all... We come together as those who have a like-minded faith in Christ. And we gather together because of that faith. Now, the state in this analogy is like denominations or groupings of, of churches. Methodists, Baptists, Presbyterians, so on. These are all different states. There are distinctions. There are differences. They do certain things different ways. Uh, they have different beliefs on, on some of the secondary issues. And if you live in an area uh, that has different options, uh, namely in suburban or or, or urban settings, uh, you'll study what the differences of these different uh, states would be and then choose the state that you align more with. So if you lived in in the city, you could choose from uh, all of those different denominations and, and so many more. So you look at, okay, which one do I agree with more? And you would you would then live in that state. Every one of these states is within the confines of the country. Every one of these states holds to an orthodox view of Christianity. They hold to an orthodox view of Jesus and the Bible. Uh, We would not agree about everything with each different state. Each state, we we use this analogy because we can look at America as an example. Each state does different things differently. There's a governor that runs the states and they can... Uh, uh, listen to each other. They can agree on certain things. They can get ideas from certain things. Some states have more influence than others. And so other states will try to follow those states. But overall, each state is to a point autonomous on its own. And then within that, as a collection of states, we come together as a nation. Uh, And we stand against other nations outside of that. This The country in this analogy is true Christianity. The country is a right view of Jesus and who he is. Fully God and fully man. God himself, the son of God, virgin birth, sinless life, put to death on the cross, paid for our sins, took the wrath from God that we deserved, rose from the dead, uh, defeated sin and death, ascended into heaven, now sitting at the right hand of God the Father until he returns to judge all humanity and recreate the heavens and the earth. That is the nation of Christianity in this analogy. This country is a, is a right view of God's words. It is, uh, God's word is inspired. It is inerrant. And that means that what it says, it means. And what it means, it says. God is, uh, it's, a, it's a right understanding of God. He is all-knowing, all-powerful, Uh, In all times, he is the creator of all that exists. He is holy and just and good. He is holy and punishes sin. And he so loved the world that he sent his son, Jesus. And Jesus shows us love. And that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. Those are the national borders of Christianity. 
Those are the things that we will rally around and those are the things that we will defend. Opposing views of those things are other countries. They are outside historical, biblical, true Christianity. The idea that Jesus was God but not man. The idea that Jesus was man but not God. The idea that Jesus was an angel or any sort of created being. The idea that he didn't die on the cross. The idea that he didn't rise from the dead. The idea that we don't need him to atone for our sins. The idea that the Bible is a bunch of good moral lessons and nothing more. The idea that the Bible is a parable for life. These are things that are not Christianity. And as a nation, we have to fight against those. Within those borders, we band together. Within those borders, we stand united. We allow things uh, that, that we allow those who are following Jesus differently, but following the true biblical Jesus that uh, different, but we, but who follow him differently than we understand to continue to do so. And we praise God that we are not Stepford Christians, all needing to be uh, uniform and the exact same lockstep going down and doing everything exactly the same. And so that's the context that we need to make sure we look at this in. John, Jesus tells John here, do not stop those people from another state in this analogy. Do not stop them. For one who is not against you is for you. The disciples seemed to be very protective and jealous of what they were empowered to do by Jesus. They didn't want anyone else to be able to do it. Uh, because that would take away from them, from their ministry, from their influence, and from their greatness. So, no, we're the only ones that can go do that. You can't go do that. We're the ones that are really following Jesus rightly. So you can't go do what we're doing. I love how, how Kent Hughes writes about Jesus' response to this. He says, Jesus desires his followers to have an open heart, not an exclusive heart. And he, then he lists examples from the Bible itself. And he writes, when jo- Joshua rushed to Moses to warn him that some elders named Eldad and Medad were preaching and thus stealing some of Moses' prominence, Moses gave the big-hearted reply, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. While in the slammer in Rome, Paul learned that rival preachers were seizing the opportunity for self-promotion. His noble response, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Or consider Jonathan, next in line to be king, according to human reason, but who made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Or John the Baptist, who responded to Jesus' ascendance by saying, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. He must increase, but I must decrease. The point that he's, he's making here, and pointing out that Jesus is making here, it's not about us at all it's all about jesus and there there are simply two options with jesus or against jesus now all that are with jesus don't have to look exactly like we look they don't have to follow jesus exactly like we follow jesus but we also see that jesus makes clear in matthew 7 there are some who think they're with jesus who are wrong and they are actually against jesus so we have to have a discerning Part, but that's, that's getting off topic here. Uh, Jesus' point here, with him or against him. The, those who are not against him are for him. 
And we should support and not limit or restrict those who are for him. No matter what group, no matter what city or state they're in, because we are all within the same country. The Jesus states of heaven. Now Luke pivots here and and makes a brief mention that changes the trajectory of the next 10 chapters of his gospel. He says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Luke does, of course, take his time, uh, but he shows that Jesus knows what's coming. and And Jesus has turned his focus on going towards Jerusalem to fulfill his reason for descending from heaven and becoming a man. From here on out, Jesus was perpetually traveling. No time to dwaddle. He's always on the move. And those who were, who were traveling with Jesus were many. Uh, they would overwhelm a village if they showed up out of nowhere. Most villages would not have had the resources uh, or the lodging to support such a large traveling caravan. And so Jesus sent out messengers ahead of time. Go to these towns ahead of time. Let them know that we are coming. Prepare food, lodging, and the, and the like. And in this instance, they came to a Samaritan village. Uh, This village would not offer hospitality to Jesus and his entourage uh, simply because they were Jewish. It says they had their eyes, he, he had his eyes set on Jerusalem. This is obviously a part of the whole Jewish Samaritan hatred that runs deep, runs deeper than most small town family feuds. Uh, We'll get into the reasons behind that in a few weeks. But suffice it, to say, suffice it to say, you have to trust me that there was no love lost between the Samaritans and the Jews. Now, most commentators will take this moment to point out another theme that we see in Luke's gospel. Uh, we see in the gospels uh, generally, but especially specifically in Luke's gospel. As R.C. Sproul writes, where was he received? He was thrown out of Galilee. They wouldn't accept him in Judea. The Samaritans rejected him. The Gerasenes expelled him. Everywhere he went, he was unwelcome. Peter writes in his first letter, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, will earn their nicknames in this story, the sons of thunder. We see why. When the Samaritan village rejected Jesus, they they wanted to go ballistic. Lord, shall we rain fire down on them and consume them? There's obvious allusions here to 1 Kings chapter 18, where Elijah rains down fire of the prophets of Baal. And this reaction by James and John, again, it, at, its, at its core, at its, at its superficial, at its uh, immediate, well, that can kind of sound understandable, sort of, maybe. The village rejected Jesus. They rejected the Messiah. Plus, or maybe even worse in the eyes of the disciples, the village wasn't Jewish. They were in another country, to use the analogy from earlier. And countries go to war with other countries. Now, yes, we are to go nuclear on the sin in our lives. Jesus tells us that it is better to cut off our hands or gouge out our eyes instead of letting sin run wild through our bodies and our lives. His point is to show how contagious and quick-spreading sin is. It really is a cancer, and it will grow unimpeded, and oftentimes without us even knowing it's there, if we do not cut it out of our bodies. But in society, 
we are often called for a more nuanced approach. Yes, we are called to stand against sin. We are called to preach the truth. However, Paul makes it clear that we are to speak the truth in love and that ultimately Jesus is the judge who will determine guilt or innocence. Jesus is the one who will suss out the righteous and the unrighteous. And Jesus is the one who will dole out perfect and final justice. There will be final and eternal punishment for those who reject Christ, but that is for him to deal with, not us. And so Jesus rebukes James and John. They had a zeal to do what, what, what was meant to be done. That is zeal to do, to serve God and to, to defend his honor, to defend Jesus and, and what is going on. But that is not how we deal with people. Christians are called to love, not retaliate, and certainly not to preemptively strike. The disciples thought that since they were a part of Jesus' followers, that they had the right, the authority, and the responsibility to dole out punishment and justice wherever they saw fit, especially to those who were not followers of Jesus. There's that prideful exclusivity that we were talking about. We see it in two separate groups being excluded. First, if someone else is doing the good work, but not part of our group, then are they really true Christians? They're definitely not as good as us. Leave the hard work, leave the real work to us. And second, if you reject Christ and therefore reject his, his, what's going on, then we need to blow up everything and go scorched earth, playing judge, jury, and in this case, literally executioner. Now, notice what Jesus does about the Samaritan village. He doesn't say, no, don't rain fire down on them, that's my job. Or, hey, that's a great idea, let me take care of that. He doesn't take it upon himself to punish the village, not then. He passes it by and moves on to another village. In case there's any understanding, Jesus is not condoning or approving of the village rejecting them. And when he tells the disciples not to rain down fire and consume them, he is not condoning or accepting what they are doing. Sometimes we fight, sometimes we preach, sometimes we protest, sometimes we boycott, and sometimes, sometimes we shake the dust from our feet, we wash our hands of the situation, and we move on. We can't fight every battle of every single sin and every single approval and support of sin that we find. We just finished, quote-unquote, Pride Month. Pride in any and all forms is a very destructive sin. And as we see, as society continues along, sins have become a source of pride. Pride in our personal sins, especially when we don't see them as sins, is the most destructive of all. Pride creates disunity. Pride made the disciples want to stop the other group of Christians from doing work in Jesus' name. Pride makes us want to rain fire on unbelievers and sinners. Pride makes us unforgiving. Pride makes us not forget slights and insults within each other. It makes us hold on to grudges. It helps us Pride makes us think negatively about other people. Causes us to forget that all human beings, both God's children and those who reject him, are created in God's image. 
And it makes us forget that we are to love one another and others. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, a famous passage, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Though it fits, the context here is not romantic love. Instead, the word used here is agape. That's the word used in the original languages. The love that we are called to love one another. Pure love. And so pride blocks this love. Pride gets the way in love. Pride gets the way in unity. When we look at those around us in this room and we insist in our own way or we get irritable or we get unforgiving or we get any of that thing amongst even ourselves as a small group, that's pride getting in our way. That's the sin of pride getting in the way of love and getting in the way of unity. And make no mistake, as, as a reason I had Psalm 133 read this morning by Mike, and as Mike mentioned, we are called to unity. God blesses unity. God de- desires unity among his people from the city level on up to the national level. We don't all have to agree on every single point of the checklist of theological beliefs and, and traditions. We don't have to agree on all points. But if, as we established earlier, we are all citizens of the same country, in this case, the kingdom of God, then we are all one in Christ. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all, and in all. One, one, one. We are one in Christ. Christ and his work on the cross are what unites us. Today, being the first Sunday of the month, we unite with communion. We unite under the Lord's table. We unite under the cross and we come together to celebrate, uh, to celebrate our unity. Because in communion, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. We're going to do this with the partaking uh, of the the little cups that we have with the wafers and the juice. Uh, And they symbolize the body and the blood. We'll celebrate this with reflection. Paul makes it clear that this is for Uh, followers of Jesus, that that Christians are the ones who partake in communion, those who are united as one in Christ. And so, as we try to say every month, if you you do not fall under that category, you just pass the elements along. There's nothing magical about this. You're not going to become saved by partaking in communion. It's not going to forgive your sins partaking in communion. It is a symbol that Jesus Christ saves and Jesus Christ forgives our sins, and he did so with his death and resurrection from the cross. So, uh, we need to come and participate with the right heart. Uh, We do this in remembrance for what he gave up for us, for remembrance of how 
how much of a big deal our sin is and why we are to uh, make sure that we go nuclear on the sin within our lives. We are to uh, uh, put to death the sin inside of us because our sin put Jesus to death on the cross. And so we need to remember that it's a big deal. We need to remember how big Christ's love for us is, that he was willing to do that and that he accomplished it and that we are now one together with each other as a church family, united under Christ. Paul recounts to the church what I now tell you as well. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We'll have uh, Jim and Mike come on up. We will pass out uh, the elements. Once they are passed out, one of them will pray for the wafer. We'll take that together. The other will pray for the juice. We'll take that together, united together. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Bangor Community Church. You can find us at facebook.com forward slash B-A-N-G-O-R Community Church C-A, all one word. If you would like to connect with Pastor Casey, please hop on over to caseyhelenchuk.com. That's C-A-S-E-Y-H-O-L-E-N-C-I-K.com. Thank you and God bless. Thank you again for listening and joining us on our journey through God's word. If you've listened this far and believe in our ministry or us as a family, please consider partnering with us. We would be honored to know that you are praying with and for us. If you feel compelled to give through financial support, information on how and where to give can be found at caseyholanchik.com slash giving. Thank you and God bless.